Good morning, everyone. We want to actually remember in prayer this week, Jessica Hunt, who is a Southern student who's going to be a student missionary going to Cameroon, uh, Africa for this next year, and is the granddaughter, Pat Hunt, one of our class members, and want to remember her in prayer this year while she's in Cameroon. And then we also want to remember Dennis Kiley, who is uh, still uh, going through the treatments for, for cancer. So, uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and, and study. We uh, pray that your angels and spirit will join us, our minds will be uplifted, that you will remove from our hearts and minds any detractors from the unity of love and, and fellowship you would have us experience. We want to remember Jessica Hunt, as she will be going as a student missionary to Cameroon, that your angels will go with her and you will use her this year to witness for your cause and bring her home safely. We pray that you will be with Dennis, who is undergoing uh, these various chemotherapies and radiation therapies, that you will give him strength and courage and, and restore him to health as it be your will and bring him back to our fellowship. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly Redemption in Romans, and the lesson title this week is The Election of Grace. And let's just jump right over to Sunday's lesson to kind of get a speed start on the lesson this week. It asks us to read Romans 10, 1 through 4, and let's look at verse 4 of Romans 10. And verse 4 of Romans 10 says, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And I want to ask you guys, what do you think it means, Christ is the end of the law? He's the purpose of the law. Okay, Margaret says he's the purpose of the law. And in fact, the lesson quarterly gives us that suggestion there in the paragraph. We'll come to that in a moment. The the purpose of the law. Is that what the end means, the end of the law? The fulfillment of the law. The completion of the law. The destination. What do you mean by the destination? No, that's where we're going to end up. Okay, so he is where where the law will take us to Christ likeness. I like these ideas. Yeah. So the results of the law. You want to expand on that? I like it. Oh, I like it. Yeah. So it doesn't mean then, this class doesn't think that it means that it's the end of the law because the full penalty of the law had been paid and it was completely paid. You don't think it means that? No? Okay. Yes? I have a new century version and it says Christ ended the law on you so that everyone who believes in him may be right with God. Oh, it just says Christ ended the law. What do you all think about that verse? This is the New Century Version. Christ ended the law so that everyone who believes in him might have righteousness. May be right with, may be right with God. Yes. Here's the New Living Translation. Go ahead and read it. I like this one. It says, For Christ has accomplished the whole purpose of the law. All who believe in him are made right with God. She says that Christ, in the New Living Version, Christ has accomplished the whole purpose of the law so that those who believe in him may be, may be made right with God. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? I, I, I don't hear those the same. Do you hear those the same? Christ ended the law versus Christ is the fulfillment or the completion of the law. Do you hear all those the same? Hmm. Well, the third paragraph in our lesson actually points it out that the translation can be translated as goal or purpose. The word translated end can be translated goal or purpose. 
So then how is Christ the end, goal, or purpose of the law? Well, should we ask what law? Was it the written law he's referring to here? So what is the purpose of the written law? Okay, I heard, I've heard it. Several of you saying it. To a couple purposes. One, to diagnose our condition. To show our need. And two, to lead us to Christ. So was Christ the, the purpose, was the, was the purpose of the law fulfilled in that, that? That it diagnosed us and led us to him? Hmm. Was there... The What do you think about this idea of the termination of the law? It comes up in several translations. Another, another, if you could hear what you said, the, the commentary in that Bible said that he is the termination of the law. Could it be the termination of the condemnation? She said, could it be the termination of the condemnation of the law? Hmm, did it say that in the text? Um, well, I, I like where, where you were going a moment ago. Is there, is there another aspect of the law? Well, I guess, that's what law? Russell said a moment ago that Christ was the fulfillment, and in, in the, the end meant he was the fulfillment. In Romans 13.10, which is just a couple chapters later, Paul actually says, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Could we say love is the completion of the law? Love is the purpose of the law? Could we say that? Love is the goal of the law? So love is the end the final end point of where the law ends is love? Yes. I think Christ is the law kept. He kept the law. And because he kept the law, we have the hope of salvation. Because Christ kept the law, we have the hope of salvation. How does his law keeping give us hope? He paid the ultimate price. So this goes back to the point uh, earlier that, that, that the ultimate price for the law was paid through Christ. And this is how maybe it brought an end. It brought an end to the, the price that needed to be paid. But, but see, I've always had a problem with that idea myself. I've heard that my whole life. It's not, it's not uh, uh, uncommon. But how would the paying of the penalty for the law, which if you look at the text, the text says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be, for a purpose, and this is the purpose, there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. How does paying the penalty bring righteousness to everyone? You know the classic example of somebody who got caught speeding? We've heard this in many analogies and sermons, and they end up before the judge, and the judge finds them guilty. Because he has to be a righteous judge. But he's also a merciful judge. So he comes down off the bench, opens his wallet, and pays the penalty himself. You've heard this, right? And how does that, that analogy lead to the speeder, you or me, who got caught, judged, found guilty, judge pays the fine. How does that lead to us going out and not being a speeder anymore? Especially when you know that he put down his American Express Platinum card so that all future fines are already pre- prepaid for you. Because all sins, past, present, and future are all paid at the cross, right? So all future sins are already paid for now, too. So when we accept the payment in this model, how does that change us to righteousness? See, I've always had problems with that. You know, it's always explained if we are so grateful that we are willing to follow Christ because of the grace. Do you think there's a better way to explain what Christ fulfilled and how he completed the law that brings righteousness? 
Yeah, and so that's why I like this this Romans. If we stick with Romans, love is the fulfillment of the law. It was Christ's. What does what is, what is the Bible describe God as? God is? So if God is love, love, the fulfillment that living love comes originates where? With God. With God, doesn't it? The entire law is summed up in the single command, love your neighbor as yourself, Galatians 5.14. Or James 2.8, if you keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Or Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands. Or Psalms 19.7. See if this throws a little bit further light onto this idea of the law and how Christ was the end of it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. How does that fit? Love is fulfillment of the law. Christ is the end of the law, which brings righteousness. The law of the Lord, perfect, revives the soul. Would a reviving soul be a righteous soul? Hmm. Did Jesus restore humanity in his own journey, walk? Does it say he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Doesn't it say that? As a, as a human being, did he not become all that God intended humanity to be when he created mankind and Adam? Did he not, through his own journey, his own exercise of his own human neural circuits, choose through a faith relationship with the Father to develop perfection of humanity all the way through to the very end of the cross? Yes? So when you think about the law, can you understand God's law, the Ten Commandments, written on stone, in its fullest sense? Have you ever heard that the law is a transcript of God's character? Okay, and the metaphor you've heard me use is is we could take a blood sample from you and we could do a a DNA uh, template of, of you, each of you, we could code and sequence your DNA, and we could have a transcript of, of your DNA. We could it'd be pages long, but pages long of your DNA sequence would be u- uniquely you. And we could say this is a transcript of you. And it would be true, wouldn't it? Would we know the sound of your laugh by looking at this? Will we know the warmth of your hug? The fullness of your character and, your, and, your, and the joy in your heart and mind, will we know all these things by, by reading the code? No. And so God's law of love, can it really be understood, written on stone, or is this a living law that can only be understood, only be fully understood, in a living being? And so Jesus is the fulfillment, the end of the law. In Jesus you see what God's law of love is supposed to be, lived out. And that's what we are supposed to be, is that not right? Yes. Yes, yeah. Okay, first paragraph says, legalism can can come in many forms, some more subtle than others. Those who lo- look to themselves, to their good deeds, to their diet, to how strictly they keep the Sabbath, to all the bad things they don't do, or to the good things that they have achieved, even the very best intentions are falling into the trap of legalism. We must every moment of our lives keep before us the holiness of God in contrast to our sinfulness. That's the surest way to protect ourselves from the kind of thinking that leads folks into seeking their own righteousness, which is contrary to the righteousness of Christ. Have you ever, ever encountered legalism? He said not in the Adventist church. No legalism there. 
they've described a legalism here. Working to do the rules, making sure you eat the right foods, paying the right amount of tithe, uh, uh, making sure that you are in the dorm until the last moment that the second strikes on sunset and poof, out you go and, and you're free for the evening after Sabbath sets. And I mean, this, this form of legalism, we've, we're familiar with it. Is that the only form? No. Well, tell me some other ways you see it. How else do you see legalism? We raise our children that way. Be a good girl, do the right thing. We, I mean, I think it's... I don't know how not to be that way in a certain, to a certain degree. She says she doesn't know how not to be that way to a certain degree. That we raise our, our children this way. Do this, don't do that. When we look at Christ as having kept the law, and that's what saves us, that I think mean, is what pushes us to the same person. Because you know, when we look at it as he did everything perfectly, he didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always held up in all the book. He kept all the commandments for us. And that just pushes us towards legalism. Yeah, so expect, have you read in the quarterly, the, the, this, this um, month, uh, this quarter, stuff like his perfect law keeping is applied to our records in heaven and we get credited for his perfect law keeping? Did you, did you read that in the quarter, quarterly? What does that sound like to you? Legalism. Legalism. Legal. This is another form of legalism. Yeah. Doing right things. There's nothing wrong with that. It's why are you doing that? Oh, he said there's nothing wrong with doing right things, but the reason you do the right things that could be wrong. Wait. Really? Wow. If we do right because we have an arbitrary God that is insisting on us just following the rules, that makes us more likely to be a legalist than if we just agree with his good ways and follow them because it makes such good sense. Oh, she said if we if we actually do it just because we're supposed to do it, it it's not the same as if, if we actually do it because we agree with him and it makes such good sense. But if we agree with him, to get what do we have to do to get to the point where we're just doing it because we're supposed to do it to the point that we actually agree with him and it makes good sense? What does that require? Understanding. Understanding, which requires thinking, right? We can't leave our brain at the door of the church. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We just take that on faith. We ask no questions. Well, the Bible says it. Hey, you know when real righteousness, human reason doesn't have a place? Mm-hmm. You've heard these sermons? Yeah, this, this, this leads to legalism, right? I don't know why I'm doing it. I just know I'm supposed to. Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Isaiah, you will hear God berating Israel. What was he berating them for in Isaiah chapter 1? Was it because of their idolatry? For feast days, for Passovers, for prayer, for Sabbaths, for coming to temple. He is all over their case for this. Why? Because they were doing it from rote, without meaning. It's a bunch of rules that they were keeping. And thus he says in Isaiah 118, come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. See, all those things he told us to do were designed to engage our thinking, to get us to reason, to get us to comprehend, to get us to agree with him. So, yes? And when you agree with him, does it not become so natural to you that it becomes a part of you and you don't even really think about it, just like your illustration of the non-spoken? Oh, she says, uh, when we agree with him, doesn't it just become part of us and it becomes natural and we don't even really think about it? For instance, how many of you in here 
well, don't, don't, you don't have to raise your hands, but, but are non-smokers. And somewhere along the way, maybe you actually thought about that and, and decided and made a decision. That's something I'm not going to do because you weighed the evidences. You looked at the pros and cons. You realized the reasons for not smoking. Is it really hard not to smoke? No. That's the example she was giving, yeah. So we can make these decisions based on reason, understanding, and suddenly that becomes part of who we are. I don't smoke because, well, my mom has a rule that if I, if I smoke, I'm going to get punished. <laughs> started out that way when we were little, but then it grew to the point we love our moms and we don't want to hurt her, right? So I don't smoke because I don't want to disappoint my mom. She'll be upset and break her heart. Now, if I don't smoke today because my mom as a rule thinks she'd be proud of me, she's right there. You can ask her. She wouldn't. She'd say, son, when are you ever going to grow up? Or, oh, I don't smoke. I really want to smoke. I'd like to smoke, but it would break my mom's heart, so I don't. Would that, would that be good? I don't see a problem with it. Oh. <laughs> you see? And this is sadly how much of Christianity is presented. Much of Christianity is presented this way. Hey, you know what? Really want to go out and, and, and murder and, and rape and pillage and do all these things. But you know what? God will punish me if I, if I do that. So I'm going to restrain my heart's true desires because... Be, wait, wait, but that's level one. Level one obedience is, is punishment obedience. I'm not going to do it because I'm going to get punished. But then we, we transcend. We come to see how much God loves us. And I still want to go out and rape and murder and pillage. But you know what? I know it will hurt God. It, and it hurts him. And I don't want to hurt him. So that's why I don't do it. You think God is just is proud of us for that? No. Or do you think God wants us to come to level three where we say, you know what? I don't even want to do that. I agree with you, God. It makes no sense. It's horrible. That, in fact, that's disgusting to even think about doing. It's not even in my heart to do anymore. Yeah, but isn't that true for all levels of obedience? This is what God wants us to come. And it says in, in um, Hebrews that, that uh, the mature have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. And this is what he wants, that heart's desire. See, Paul used to think a mature Christian or a mature uh, Jew was the one who wanted to do those horrible things, but used great self-restraint not to. And that's when he said, then the commandment examined me and said, thou shalt not covet, and I was condemned. Because all the first nine you can do behaviorally, but the tenth, what can you do in the tenth behaviorally? Nothing. The tenth is all about heart. And if it hasn't, the heart hasn't been changed, then we're still not, we're still not in harmony. So, legalism. We're talking about forms of legalism. One is this thing that we've all been raised with and really conditioned against, I think, in our church, which is, which is you know, you can wade on Sabbath and the water can hit your knee, but if it goes above the knee, now you've entered the sin zone. The no sin zone, right? Water below the knee. Okay? But, uh, you know, these types of things. And the, the mustard... Fortunately, we've got a university up here where kids will be prevented from sinning. There's no mustard nor pepper at the uh, cafeteria, so they will be they will be set free. I, I'm because I wasn't raised Adventist, and I joined the church just to get the chapter off the back. I came in for all the wrong reasons. But when I look back at it, and I think if you if you've been raised Adventist, I see in there a lot of this choking. But do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I was raised in a home that was alcoholism. I don't drink because I don't want that. So when you're out there more, you see, oh, you know, adultery causes this, and premarital sex causes babies and diseases, and 
Well, she says that she wasn't raised in an Adventist home. And in an Adventist homes, there's somewhat sheltered, protected. You got a bunch of don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But not necessarily an awareness of all the negative pains and consequences. And she was in, raised in an alcoholic home. And she saw the pain of what alcohol does for firsthand. And she, she never wants to be part of that. And she says, maybe the, 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 when you see the consequences of, of deviating from God's methods, then you have an appreciation. You go, oh, I don't want to participate in that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So one form of legalism, though, is this, is this behavior. I think there's another form, and that is this form of legalism called penal substitution theology. That God is, is, is legally involved in a legal process in which he has to jump through legal hoops so that he can be legally able to legally pardon and save you. Stuff like we have in heaven uh, record books being opened and... Uh, examination of uh, historical accounts are taking place and there's adjustment uh, by uh, angelic penmen of the records going on and forgiveness is being stamped by the books of heaven. And some are being uh, legally pardoned and others are not being legally pardoned. And anybody uncomfortable with that whole construct? This is not logical to me. They're all in heaven looking over our records. I mean, we're talking millions of people. These are perfect beings up there. Whoever's looking at See, the biggest problem I have with this whole construct is when you have Christ dying in order to give God legal permission or enable God to be able to extend pardon, then what you have is the obstacle to our salvation is God's attitude, God's unwillingness, some, some, some aspect where Christ had to die to, to remove an obstacle. Now, let's be clear. Of course, no, no being could be restored to rightness with God if God was unforgiving. If God refused to personally pardon, we couldn't be reconciled. Of course, that's true. My position is it was never a barrier. God is forgiveness. God was always reaching out. As soon as mankind sinned, God was coming after him. Even before mankind sinned, Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. And God was always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a triune perfection, using their energies towards our redemption and salvation. There was never a need for one member of the Godhead to do something to convince, uh, bring over, uh, persuade another member of the Godhead, uh, or do anything to even enable that member of the Godhead to be forgiving or pardoning. That was never an obstacle. Yes. I think initially there was an argument in heaven um, amongst Lucifer and the other unfallen um, angels that God could not be mercy and justice. And so initially it was not necessarily to prove because God is God and he is who he is and he doesn't necessarily have to prove, but he wants us to see and he wants it to be an example nevertheless that he can in fact, be um, judicial and merciful at the same time. And what he has said, it has to be so. Um, sin, the consequences of sin is death, and there's no like, going back. Yeah, but the, the question would be the reason why. Why is sin death? Is it because God judicially has to invoke and execute a death penalty upon sinners? Or is the reason that sin is death is because it deviates from the very protocols upon which God designed life to operate upon, and life cannot exist outside those, those, those dynamics or protocols? Well, when you have God saying through his love and forgiveness, I am giving you the potential for love and forgiveness. Do you accept Non-acceptance of, of God's love is the separation, is the sin, if you will. And then if, if, you, if you get to the point, you finally say, well, I don't accept, I don't accept, which is what we will call sin, for lack of a better term this morning. 
Um, God says, okay, well, I am here, I am offering, I am giving. If you don't want it, I can no longer offer it anymore. Finito. Well, God never stops offering. I, would, I, would, I like what you're saying, except one little caveat would be, um, if you keep rejecting, rejecting, you lose the capacity to accept. If we reject long enough, we actually lose the capacity to recognize and respond to truth. God's still forgiving. God's still gracious. God's still loving. God's still in his heart would love to heal and save. However, sin damages sinners, sears consciences, warps reason, alters character, so settles us into the, the, the mold of the satanic character that we become beyond the point of redemption and restoration. Not that God's attitude becomes hardened against us, but we become so hardened against him that we won't respond to any light or love or truth anymore. It has no impact upon us anymore. So, so that back to the question, though. Why, why does death come? Is it a judicial act that God has to invoke and inflict? Or is it the natural consequence of a being who persists in living or choosing to alienate themselves and, and prevent themselves from reconciliation with God, the only source of life? Ken? There's a... The reason I think we don't trust what God says here before that we don't trust each other, and that is that we have a basic understanding of the nature of man that it is sinful. So it's not so much about the technicality of being able to be forgiven, it's just the technicality that we, whether somebody claims forgiveness or more righteousness or whatever, we just say, yeah, 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 show me. And we don't really believe that a person is, is right with God until they're translated. Let's finish up, though, this idea, though, because this judicial, this mercy. In, in, in the Desire of Ages, page 762, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan um, alleged that the law of God cannot be kept. And that if man should sin, mercy and justice were incompatible with each other. And then, remember the words we've said in here before. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan's allegation was if, if sin should occur, God was required to inflict punishment. That is Satan's position, folks. Recognize that. God's never said that. The scripture doesn't teach that. God's position is mercy, forgiveness, healing, restoration. God's position is that the wages of sin is death. Or, James chapter 1, sin when full grown brings forth death. Notice where the, the scripture's position that, sin, that, that, that death has its roots or origins or outgrowth from sin. The, the penal model and Satan's position is God is the source of death. God inflicts death. God, God destroys. God causes people to die. And, and with, that, with that idea, if God would just sit back and restrain himself and get a little grip on his wrath and anger, well, sinners could live eternally in sin because, you know, there's not really anything wrong with sin. There's something wrong with an angry, wrathful God who has to kill sinners. And you see the subtle little twist that gets, gets presented about God. The truth is, much of Christianity and religions of the world teach people to be more afraid of God, who's trying to save them, than sin, which is destroying them. And we should really fear sin and we should be running with all of our hearts toward God. Linda. Jesus' relationship with Peter and with Judas, a good example of this, in that with he, both of them, 
fell short, so to speak. Jesus' relationship with both of them all through was nothing but forgiveness. Even Judas washed his feet so long before he was betrayed by him. This is God in action towards a person who ultimately opens his heart to forgiveness from God and a person who doesn't. Yeah, and I, and I like what you said because what was it that resulted in the death of Judas? Did God execute him? Notice it was his own guilty, miserable conscience that he couldn't live with himself. He went out and destroyed himself. This is the wages of sin. Sin results in destruction. And what, when, when, when Christ appears again with power and glory, the wicked are destroyed by? What, what, what are the righteous doing? Where are the righteous at that time? In, in the exact same brightness, and it says in Rome, uh, excuse me, in Daniel chapter seven, that the ancient of days took his throne, and rivers of fire came out before him, and ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands and thousands stood in this fire. Or Isaiah chapter thirty-three, verses fourteen and fifteen, tells us that the righteous will live for all eternity in the eternal burning and consuming fire. This fire is not harmful to righteous. But the wicked are destroyed by their unhealed, harmful uh, hard-heartedness. So back to the, the text that we're looking at, which is Romans 10.4, which uh, again said that Christ is the end of the law so there may be righteousness for everyone. And we're asking, how is Christ the end of the law for righteousness purposes? So we've already talked about Christ as the fulfillment of the law of love, that in Christ we saw the law of love lived out. Would we say then that the question next is, then what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Doing right, would, it, would, would somebody who is righteous also be in harmony with the law of love? Yes. So would, would, you, would, would it be wrong to say that righteousness and perfection of the law of love as revealed in Christ would be synonyms? Would that be, would that be wrong or would that be okay to say? Yeah, the same thing. The law of love lived out is righteous, isn't it? That is what righteousness looks like. So if, if we're right in this, then would that mean then that righteousness means harmony with the law of love, which means life, health, happiness. True? Because the law of love is the law of life. Okay? So look at Proverbs twelve twenty eight. This is fascinating. In the way of righteousness, there is life. Along that path is immortality. In the way of righteousness, there's life. Along that path is immortality. Or Proverbs 21, 21. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. And, and as we've talked in here before, the law of love is not simply a set of rules enacted by a powerful potentate. And this is how... Really, if you, if you have conversations with people who are in the, the more penal forensic model, and you really want to break the issue down, get them back to the law and ask them, tell me, tell me about God's law. Is God's law something he imposed, something he enacted, something he legislated? Now, as the great legislator of law, he has to now oversee, uh, rule, make judicial acts upon, and enforce penalties for? Or is the law of love the actual design schematics like the laws of nature, the laws of gravity? Is the law of love a design schematic upon which he constructed and built all life to run? If the law of love is a design schematic upon which he made everything to operate, and you deviate from it, well, what's going to happen? It's not going to work, and you're going to? And the wages of sin? The wages of deviating from the law of love is? Death. 
And then you see what God is doing. His creation is out of harmony with his design protocols. Pain, suffering, agony, and death is coming. What does he do as soon as man falls into sin? He begins intercession. Historically, we've taught intercession as one member of the Godhead standing between us and the other member of the Godhead who sits on his judicial throne, pleading his blood, my, my blood father, please, please hold your wrath in check and don't strike lightning bolts down and kill them. This is what we've traditionally seen intercession to be. This is not scriptural intercession. If you look at the scripture, God intercedes in three places. Soon as man sinned, Genesis chapter 3, it said that the, the, uh, God came down and spoke to the serpent. And he said to the serpent, which is Satan, I will put enmity. What's enmity mean? Antagonism between you and the woman. Who's the woman? The church. The, well, humankind or the church, yeah. Well, what does that enmity mean? It means God is interceding in our hearts. First place, intercession, in our hearts to put a desire for good. To put a longing, to put a conviction. The Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin. He intercedes in our hearts and minds against our own proclivities and biological warp that we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, to give us a desire for something better. He intercedes with principalities and powers of darkness, the forces of Satan. He puts hedges of protection around. We see this in the book of Job. We see this when Elisha and the Assyrians came and we had the angelic host around protect. God sends his angelic host to intercede with principalities and powers of darkness. And he interceded in a third place. In the actual progression and consequences of sin itself, on the human species, when Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, taking our condition upon himself, stepping between us and what sin would have done to us, he took that upon himself for the purposes of fixing it, curing it, reversing it, undoing it, restoring the image of God in man, destroying Satan's uh, assault on the human species and putting back perfectly God's law of love in the human being. Christ did this in his own walk and journey here on earth. And you're familiar with the, the, the quotation, Desire of Ages, page 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. But Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. And this is what he came to do. So we see that there's two ways of looking at it. We have a legal law that God imposed, and now he has to impose penalties upon us. And Jesus stands as our great advocate and lawyer, pleading to the Father, his blood, to pay our legal penalty. And now we have this dichotomy set up between a loving father and a, uh, excuse me, a judicial father and a loving son who protects us. And you have this whole legal mishmash that really never made sense to me. Or we have God's law as the law upon which he built life. And we deviated from it free will which results in pain, suffering, and death. And it's a terminal condition without intervention. We could not fix it. So Christ came, partook of our nature, in order to fix what was broken. And now, it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, once he became perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. And so once Christ completed his mission here, and this is just several, and the pieces, if you, if, you, if you allow your mind to meditate on this and start looking at the, the pieces, you'll find how this puzzle fits so beautifully together. For instance, if it was just legal payment that was required, the shedding of the blood of the innocent Son of God in order to pay the legal penalty, well, how long would Jesus actually have had to been on earth to do that? What was Herod trying to do? Kill, well, now, was baby Jesus still God incarnate? Was he still sinless and perfect? And if Herod would have had his way, wouldn't the blood of the Son of Jesus been shed very quickly? 
then our legal penalties would have been paid. It's not about paying legal penalties. It's about achievements. Christ had to achieve in his human brain, in his human nature, a perfection to reverse all the damage that sin had done to us. Thus, he becomes the vine and we are the branches connected to him. The Holy Spirit takes all he's achieved and reproduces in us. We really get new hearts, minds, motives, principles. We love others more than this inherent drive to protect ourselves constantly. So how do we experience this, this righteousness? This is out of That I May Know on page 206. God would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that he might counteract. Now notice what he's going to die. Traditionally, penal model, to die to pay the penalty for our sin. Listen to this. To give his son to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What's the workmanship of God? to remove the defiling. He's, he's fixing it. He's cleansing. He's restoring. He sent him to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God and reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity. Get this, what, how? Through the imputed righteousness or through Christ's imputed righteousness, what it says, through Christ's imputed righteousness. Do you understand the power of that statement? Because the penal model will tell you that imputed righteousness has no effect on your actual condition. Imputed righteousness is the legal accounting measure that happens in heaven when God accounts us or declares us righteous even though we're not. And then once we're declared or accounted righteous, then we get imparted righteousness, which changes us. This is what the legal forensic model tries to do. It's theological mumbo-jumbo. Imputed righteousness is an experience that we partake and participate with Christ. How about this one? This is out of Amazing Grace, page 96. But we all, with open face, behold, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by, as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for the truth as for a hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. When we take him as our personal Savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding him, we become changed, morally assimilated. Now, notice, we are becoming changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Does that sound like a legal accounting process to you? Yes. Or does this sound like a transforming process? Transforming. The imputed righteousness. We become assimilated to what he is like. We become transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through this process. It is real. And this other model actually keeps us from experiencing the actual regeneration, renewal, and transformation that God wants to us to experience now. Thoughts, questions about that? Yes, Ben. Ah, a new heart, new spirit. When? What does this say in Ezekiel? We read this last week. This is Ezekiel 36, starting verse 23. The Lord says, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among the nations. Okay, well, first off, what's, what's it mean when it says the name of the Lord? What's another way of saying that? God's character. So God's character has been misrepresented and profaned by? Israel. 
by Israel. And who is Israel today? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. It's in our lesson for today. Paul talks about who Israel is, who, who's been broken off and who's been grafted in. Who's been grafted into Israel? We are. So we are. This is, this is talking about us too. We have profaned the name, his character. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Notice how he's going to demonstrate his holiness. How? Through us. How is he going to do that through us? Well, notice what it says. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow all my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. When is that supposed to happen? Now. Now. Now, this is what God is waiting for, a people at the end of earth's history who have so trusted him, so come to see the truth about him. By beholding him, we become changed. Open the heart to him that we actually have an indwelling presence in the sanctuary, the spirit temple. The sanctuary is cleansed. And how have we taught that? Racing sins out of books in heaven. Does sin take place in record books? Where does God want to remove sin from? Books or from hearts and minds? He's wanting to cleanse us people. He's wanting to cleanse us. 2300 days in the sanctuary be cleansed. Yes. There's a picture arising here. I think so much of the father's fathers were growing up that righteousness was announced. But it's also a birth. A process, an experience, an action. Reflection. Yes, because... And love. See, righteousness and love. Love is a noun or a verb. Yeah, love is, love is action. Can you be love and not give? Can you love and not give? No. Love is an action. So what is the process? By beholding, we are changed. By participating, by studying, coming to a true knowledge of God. What is Satan's power? Hebrews 2.14, that Christ took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Devil holds the power of death. What is the power? John 17.3, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God of Jesus Christ, and now sent. Let's do the math. Life eternal is? So what would eternal death be? Not knowing God. So what's Satan's power? The lies that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. That's his power. Satan is the father of lies. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, do you think that the cross of Christ was the greatest momentous event in universal history? And the most crucial event in our salvation plan, in the salvation plan, yes? Do you think Satan, after the, what Christ achieved, just sat by idly afterwards, or did he counterattack with all his might and fury? And what's his weapons? Number one weapon. So do you think that, we, that the, the primary issue on, on the cross is just to ignore it, or the primary issue is to teach it, but teach it twisted? 
just as he did with the Jews. They had the scriptures, they had the sanctuary, they had the health message, they had all these things, and he got them to so twist its meaning that when God came and stood among them, they hated him and they killed him. So how are we understanding the cross? Has it been twisted? I've been doing some really fascinating research this past two weeks, and it has to do with something called epigenetics. And epigenetics are the instructions that sit above your DNA code that tells which cells, which, which part of the DNA to be expressed and which part of the DNA not to be expressed. And we've known about this for years because every cell in your body has the exact same DNA. But something tells certain cells to become liver cells and certain cells to become brain cells, and certain cells become muscle, and certain cells become bone, but they all have the exact same DNA. And it's the codes that sit above the DNA telling certain cells to become... And these, these epigenetic changes historically have been thought to be permanent. You know, the, the liver cells don't suddenly start becoming bone, and the bone don't suddenly start becoming liver, and so forth. What we're discovering, though, when it comes to the brain, this is fascinating, when it comes to the brain... Memories are not simply stored in the neural circuits of you know, which, which connections have been made when we learn and so forth. Memories are actually being stored in the epigenetic changes above the DNA, how the DNA, the chromatin, is actually packaged. And based on your experiences, you will attach little chemical groups to the uh, DNA, which will cause the configuration of the DNA in the neurons themselves to, to alter its shape and configuration, which helps store memories. And so when they've taken, they've taken models in which uh, they've lost m- millions of cells, so it's like an Alzheimer's brain, and they will put an acetyl group on what's called a histone, and when that happens, memories are recovered that have been lost. So it's not that the memories have been lost with Alzheimer's, it appears, but the memories become inaccessible because of the neuronal loss. This is very fascinating research. So it goes back to... Well, by beholding that we become changed. And I'm doing some research on that along with um, the, the commandment under the third and fourth generation. See, the, the experiences we participate in change our genetic expression. We have well documented that you will pass those changes on to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and most likely your great-great-grandchildren, three and four generations down. What you do in life changes you, and you pass that down multiple generations. But notice it says in the commandment that the, the sins or the iniquities are passed down three and four generations for them that hate me. But I show mercy to thousands of generations that love me. And what I'm believing this is tr- meaning is this. When you put this together with Ellen White's writings, when she says through the Holy Spirit, we have power to overcome every hereditary and cultivated tendency toward evil. And put this together, you notice that the, the iniquities only pass down three and four generations for them that hate me. Why? Because if we hate God, we don't open the heart. The Holy Spirit can't come in. We don't get a renewal of, of truth that regenerates the mind. But when we love God, we open the heart. The Holy Spirit comes in. And this is actually resulting in epigenetic changes and actual removing of these instructions so that we can break the cycle and not pass some of this along to our kids. Fascinating research. Do you find it interesting? Yeah, fascinating stuff. By beholding, we are really, really changed all the way down. Would you please take those two words, impart and impute, and get into it a little deeper? It's confusing. She said, can we take the two words, impart and impute, and get into it a little deeper? You know, I think that it's confusing in a penal system. (laughs) I see them as very, very much synonyms. Imputing and imparting, I see as synonyms. I see it's a false dichotomy to split them. Now, some will say imputing is God's attitude towards, 
and imparting is his action towards. Let me say that again. Some will say that imputing is God's attitude towards. He acts towards us with an attitude as if. The woman caught in adultery, and God said, where are your accusers? His actions toward her, he's treating her as if she's, she's not an adulteress. He's imputing righteousness as his action. So some would say imputed righteousness is, is his attitude. And then his imparted righteousness would be the action he takes to instill righteousness. I see them as synonyms. He is, because he is treating us in this way with grace and mercy, and simultaneously is instilling and healing. And uh, So I don't really, I think breaking him down is a theological splitting of hairs. Yes? I think that he's that, okay, the last week we before about the thief on the cross and how he was changed at that moment rather than just... Uh, system, you know, right. I got a couple more really important points I want to catch, catch for this week's class. Um, in the, in uh, Monday's lesson, last paragraph, uh, it says, in these verses, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, which the Jews accepted as authoritative. The passage that Paul cites represents God as giving to Israel a spirit of slumber, preventing their seeing and hearing. Does God blind people's eyes to prevent them from seeing light that would lead them to salvation? Never. These passages must be understood in light of our explanation of Romans 9. Paul is not talking of individual salvation, for God rejects no one group in mass for salvation. The issue here instead, as it has been all along, deals with the role these folks play in his work. If you understood that, we went real fast, we didn't have time to break it down, but this is the passage in Romans where it talks about, um, you know, God blinded these people um, and prevented them from hearing, made them deaf to hear and hard to see and so forth. And it's saying that it has nothing to do with salvation, it has to do with their role. Really? Are we better off when we say God doesn't blind people to salvation? He only blinds them to being able to fill the role he has for them. Does that, does that make, make God look out to be better? No, but that's what the lesson just said, isn't it? Yeah, no, I don't think that's what it means at all. Here's what, here's what it probably means. This is out of Conflict and Courage. This is uh, page 371. Each actor in history stands in his lot and place. For God's great work, after his own plan, will be carried out by men who have prepared themselves to fulfill positions for good or evil. In opposition to righteousness, men become instruments of the unrighteous, but they are not forced to take this course of action. They need not become instruments of unrighteousness any more than Cain needed to. Men of all characters, righteous and unrighteous, will stand in their, in their positions in God's plan with the characters they have formed. They will act their part in the fulfillment of history. In a crisis, just as at, at the right moment, they will stand in the place they have prepared themselves to fill. Believers and unbelievers will fall into line as witnesses to confirm truth that they themselves do not comprehend. All will cooperate in accomplishing the purposes of God, just as did Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod. In putting Christ to death, the priests thought they were carrying out their own purposes, but unconsciously and unintentionally they were fulfilling the purposes of God. God looks into the tiny seed that he himself has formed and sees wrapped within it the beautiful flower, the shrub, or the lofty, wide-spreading tree. So does he see the possibilities of every human being. We are here for a purpose. God has given us his plan for our life, and he desires us to reach the highest standard of development. Does that make it clear? 
Does God cause anyone to develop an unrighteous character so it will fulfill a purpose for him? Did he cause Judas to be a betrayer? Or he looked into Judas's heart, and despite every inducement for his redemption and salvation, including Christ getting on his knees and washing his dirty feet, Judas hardened his own heart. And God foreknew this. And this was used in a greater plan for a greater good, but God did not cause it. Is this not critically important to, to, to recognize what kind of God would God be if he caused people to rebel and become unrighteous? He'd be a sadistic puppet master. Sadistic puppet master is what he would be. Okay, let's talk uh, Wednesday's lesson about Israel and who is Israel. This is Romans chapter 11, 25 through 27. This is out of the NIV. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, historically, what does this mean? This has been debated for centuries. This, this covenant with Israel. According to the Bible, who are Abraham's descendants? Yeah, Paul had already made the case earlier in um, Romans that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Both the circumcised and the uncircumcised are the children of Abraham. Uh, when the Jews were talking to Christ in John chapter 8, verse 39 through 42, 44, they, they said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, if Abraham was your father, you'd believe in me. You would do the things Abraham did. You would have faith. You would have trust. You're of your father, the devil. So, um, and then in Galatians 3, 6, and 7, it's, Paul says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. So, when we hear this text, this mystery about Israel experiencing a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. What do you understand that to mean? Until the gospel has been preached. Here, here's, and in closing, I'll just read my paraphrase of those verses. I want to explain to you this mystery, this unexplainable rejection of God by Israel, so that you will not become conceited and make the same mistake. A large part of the genetic descendants of Abraham have hardened their hearts to God and rejected the truth as revealed by Jesus. Therefore, God's plan for Abraham's descendants will not be fulfilled until those hardened and broken off are replaced by a large number of Gentiles who are grafted in. And so all true children of Abraham, those like Abraham in character, not genetics, will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove all selfishness and sin from those who trust God like Jacob. And my promise to them is this, I will heal them and remove all sin, disease, and defect from them, restoring them perfectly to my original ideal. This was the purpose for Israel. And God's purpose for Israel will not be fulfilled until all of us have come in and been restored through God's grace, His working, His presence, His spirit, to be as God originally designed mankind to be. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you have sent Christ to reveal the truth, to win the victory we could not win, to achieve remedy for this horrible condition. We thank you for your spirit. We ask for your spirit's presence now to come into our hearts, remove our confused thinking, remove the distorted ideas that have 
that have obstructed our ability to see your true true heart and nature and kingdom. Write your law of love back under the, the tablets of our hearts, the, that new covenant experience that in this community, in this group, we will experience love for you and for each other, that our fears and insecurities will fade away and that we will come together to, to spark a spark that will lighten this world with the final message of mercy, the truth about your character of love, that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.